Please leave me a rating and a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever. Thank you. Today's interview ends with the musical eulogy, which is cool. It's also cool because I'm interviewing my housemate, who's a bit odd. And what do I mean by odd? Well, he acts differently when compared to what we call normal. He puts metal in the microwave, or he has put metal in the microwave. He doesn't always remember to lock the door. He loses things and then blames it on cosmic entanglement, or what he calls cosmic mojo. He puts honey-roasted peanuts on his pasta. I got that wrong about the honey-roasted nuts in the pasta. Um, How do you... Tell me about the beans you put in with your pasta. Uh, It's usually black beans or (laughs) it's uh, uh, what's called kidney beans. So one of those two. But um, it's dependent on the sauce I have as well. So sometimes I add veggies. But I don't really care if you put beans in pasta or anything like that. But online, I was checking out, and it's a much more common thing than I was aware of anyway. But I do remember I was made fun of it a long time ago for putting beans in pasta. And so that's why I thought it was atypical. He shampoos his hair, and then he turns off the shower with the shampoo still in, and he goes about his business. And then he goes back into the shower to finish shampooing. I don't mean to list all of this to make fun of him or set up a criteria for how to be normal, but I do think it's clear that he's at least one standard deviation from normal. And in a way, he's free from the tyranny of normal. Though being different isn't easy as well, which you'll hear in this interview. I tried to interview him before, and I did a very bad job. And by very bad job, I mean I yelled at him, and we argued about how to treat his mental illness. Spoiler alert, you don't treat it by having your friends yell at you. I think I'll release a shortened version of that as a supplementary piece of basically how not to interview someone and also how not to support someone. Here's the theme song. What's the microphone is an external ear. Mm-hmm. So uh, imagine like this notion of a third eye. You have a third ear and you being hooked up to another place ear. You're listening to that sound much louder in that perspective. Yeah, that's a good point. We have a um, perceptual bias towards the eye because the third eye of the, the opening to the pineal gland or whatever they say is... but. Yeah, it insults the other senses. I like to say that um, eyes are are quite overly praised, so much so that 
when we need glasses, we use <laughs> we use the other senses just to hold the glasses on. The mm-hmm. nose holds it on. The ears hold it on. <laughs> like those senses are just like, are you kidding me? I <laughs> love eyes so much. It's like I'm here for smelling, not for making the the eyes look better. Mm-hmm. Okay, welcome to your eulogy, the podcast where I in- interview someone about their life so that we can talk about their death. This is a special interview. I'm interviewing my housemate. We had tried an interview before. It went about an hour and 50 minutes long, and I yelled at him um, for not treating his mental health in the way I thought he should. I was really trying to control the interview to show you, the listener, my perception of this uh, unique person. And that's just not how interviews work. I just have to let him show you who he is and... If um, you come to the same conclusions as I, well, then <laughs> whatever. Um, my guess, uh, we'll leave it anonymous, right? Mm-hmm. In case we talk about your family, you don't want to um, um, uh, put a, uh, a highlight. What's the spotlight on them? Yeah, it's like uh, I don't want I don't want them to either feel bad or others. Like it's one of those things like you don't want. It's not. I don't use the word sympathy type of thing. It's sometimes like this is the weird thing of, you know, you, you don't want to make yourself seem like a victim type of thing because people will treat you differently because of that. So like there's a part of me that I want to look strong, not, you know, wallow in this. I don't know. Okay. Uh, well, th- that's a little bit different than protecting your family. Uh, uh, protecting is, the were family, you saying like, something it's, different it's, 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 about... So, so the protecting the family part... I. One aspect is when you share something of mental illnesses or there's a stigma associated with it. So any employer, when they just know this, if you're talking about bias of uh, convicts, ex-cons and that sort of thing, right, then mental illness is definitely in that uh, level. And there is there is no protection from that. And this is why for the HIPAA violation, this is why it makes a, a big deal of this because it is something that's essential. And if there's any reason for an employer not to hire someone, this would be it. And with all the negative stigmatization associated with shootings, which I think is unfairly attributed to mental illness, you know, this is, you know, further the reason of not wanting to publicly say this because unless you're already established or and technically I do want to be an advocate for it, but at the same time I'm not in the position to be having all this wealth and that sort of thing that if I'm needing a position to get a job or yeah yeah i i understand um yeah that that's i i thought you were more wanting to protect your family not um and i i wasn't um i wasn't as aware of uh you needing to protect yourself um when you were talking about shooters i (laughs) had i was thinking of some joke um i was listening to history of the insanity defense or whatever and um it's like, I think it's funny because like, wait, so sane people can murder someone? Like, <laughs> murder just seems to be the most insane thing ever. Like, you can't be sane and then like murder someone. Well, you know, there's something called war, which is like, you know, legalized murder. So Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's talk about your family first. What um, what do you want to say about your upbringing to um, flush out your your person or your character? 
Uh, I'm a first generation, so I was born in uh, Bangladesh, and I came to America at age two. I we came from the diversity visa program, which is essentially a lottery system, and uh, that's how my family came here. So we didn't really have much money. We grew up in poverty, and uh, another important detail is that my dad uh, fought in the independence war uh, for uh, Bangladesh, and. Uh, he, I learned one year ago, or less than a year ago, that he experienced a lot of traumatized, traumatizing events of, you know, of war-related activities, and uh, that was something I was not aware of, and my entire family was not even aware of this as well, so, like, I was the, the first person that he shared this with, so that was a very touching moment, but uh, there was, you know, yeah, there was a lot of, I would say, dysfunction, abuse in a variety of ways within my family and uh, it's something that I continue to live with and it's something where I feel well I feel like this is where if you have people that experience trauma or adversity they'll say you know it's awful but at the same time they learn they learn about others they learn about really kind of like the nature of like it really helps with the empathy part by understanding what is abuse and really experiencing it. And sometimes, even for me, you know, there's others, you know, it's not about, like, comparison who has got more trauma than others, but at least it enables us to sort of step back. And I think that's a very important tool. I think it's a tool to communicate with others from different cultures, backgrounds, because it's a common thing. Yeah. Um, let's do a quick history lesson um, just to teach you. I don't think most people know about the Bangladeshi-Pakistan uh, War. Um, do you want to give a little bit of an overview, or would you like me to do it? Uh, <laughs> I mean, just I yeah. just I just think it's it's respectful to let people just to say like you know. So there was India and Pakistan, and after partition, after colonial rule, they separated them based on religion, mm-hmm. and then because uh, the area that became Bangladesh was had a lot of Muslims in it that got grouped in with Pakistan. So they were, they were the same, were they the, they were same, the same country? country? They were the same country. Even though they were thousands of miles yeah, apart. There was a, <laughs> India was between them. In yeah. fact, India surrounded Bangladesh too so as well. So like it, uh, many people don't know that. <laughs> yeah, there's a word for that. There's not a lot of countries that are surrounded by another country. Um, the word is enclave. I thought it was a different word, though. So if you know a synonym for enclave that makes you sound smarter, if you know it, please let me know at your eulogymail at gmail.com. Well, maybe I'll put it in in post. Um, and then so Bangladesh wanted to be separated from Pakistan and for political reasons. Well, it was not political. It was a massacre. It was political and also uh, there was uh, a massacre that occurred in the the university, so it's almost like removing all the intellectuals, and it's one of those things where, in many developing, in the developing world, the students and the the young students in the in colleges, they're the ones who sort of drive the change, mm. and uh, it is a little bit personal as well. So the United States actually was backing uh, Pakistan, or uh, they were backing um, West Pakistan at that time, and it was because of the Soviet Union provided a buffer that it didn't turn out to that type of war. And India was the one that sort of stepped in. And uh, a little bit about my dad, he was in the guerrilla army that sort of uh, was fighting against Pakistan. And when you, 
when your dad comes forward and, and kind of like finally tells, you know, um, you and your family members that he feels, um, you know, he, he suffered because of it. He felt like he had to do things he didn't want to do. Um, when you start to see the origins of why he was uh, angry and abusive to you and your family, does that help um, understand or was because the hurt happened so long ago, it almost feels more like an intellectual thing? Or does it feel more emotional to be able to um, see that explanation for where his anger comes from? I think it's... Um, I would say this is the most difficult thing. So uh, there is a stereotype associated with middle children. So I'm a middle child, so two older brothers, one younger brother and really young sister. And the st- one of the stereotypes is that we can either be a teenage angst phase, we hate everyone, or we're the uh, peacemaker. So there was a phase I was a peacemaker. And the thing with the peacemaker, you try to make sense of why are people like this and try to, you know, work along with that and accept it. And, you know, and I think the, the biggest challenge, it would be this notion of forgiveness versus unconditional forgiveness. And the difference between unconditional forgiveness is, yes, you know this, but is he or she changing? Are they making attempts to be better? And if it's not the case, then, you know, how can you react? So if someone's being mean and you understand why they're being mean, right, and you tell them, you know, this is why you're being mean and they expressed it, and they don't change that or they're trying to change it in any meaningful way, then, you know, how much can you, you know, take it? It's kind of like a toxic relationship would be a a, a similar uh, vein to that. Would you say that the difference would be accepting the person versus, well, I guess not versus anything? Because you want, like, a toxic relationship, you want someone to change in some sort of way, right? You feel like either you're not being listened to, uh, you they're not listening to you, so, like, it's it's one of those aspects. So with this, and that's why I use the word con- unconditional. So in a toxic relation, if you have an unconditional love for that person and that happens a lot of times some domestic you know abuse cases and stuff right that then you're willing to take that you're willing to take that even if you are being harmed at that process but it's very hard to be in that unconditional state and uh with knowledge and this is where historical trauma or anything like that it's it comes down to that of like yes you understand you're trying but if they're not meeting halfway or you know then you know, what else can you do? It just harms you by trying to continue to uh, uh, change them or change you. Like, um, hopefully that's sort of clear. Yeah, a little bit. I'm having a... Yeah, well, let's talk about specifics. So, um, well, I mean, what do you want to talk about? We don't have to focus on your family and, like, your story of, like, living in a violent... um, Childhood, if if you don't want to, if you want to, well, talk about something I would else. just say just one aspect of it. Ed. It's one of those things where I think a lot of times in I don't want to say poorer communities. I don't want to make this generalization, but there is this notion of toughness, and those toughness is intergenerational trauma that you need to be tough to survive. So a lot of times that works with the parenting as well. So I've hear hear this in a lot of times in the local community of, you know, young people explaining of, you know, toxic masculinity and those aspects where I'm like, yeah, that's a part of, that was in my culture. And it's not something that's specifically Bengali. This is something that's universal for people that do experience trauma of warfare, of refugees, of death and that sort of thing. This is the, 
after effects. There's an intergenerational trauma that sort of carries over. And if we're not discussing about this in this genuine, frank way, then this cycle can continue to go on. Well, let me get on my armchair to do some bullshit cycle analysis, which I do on every episode. It's kind of the point of, <laughs> of this show is I talk to people and I pretend I understand them. Because of the intensity of your family and the closeness of your family, not only literally because you grew up in a uh, you know, a bunch of people in, in one apartment, but also just the the intensity of, of having a dysfunctional um family and I, I, that sounds like it makes it sound like everything was always dysfunctional and, and oh there were some good times yeah yeah perhaps a... we need a better term to describe um a high stress um environment but you've extricated yourself from it and now you focus on building community in minnesota mm-hmm. do you see where i'm going with this do you see that perhaps <laughs> well, you're trying to make you're trying I, to I feed think... something that's inaccessible <laughs> I think there was some element of that. There was a, I would say there was a huge transition. So there's a part I did not mention about growing up as well. So it's not just the abuse of like the parents did to each other, but there was elements within toward myself. So, uh, and this is why I wanted to kind of keep it a little bit anonymous in some sense, but like they used to call me retard explicitly all the time, even as an adult, even if when I was, you know, got a scholarship, fellowship, for UC Berkeley, the same thing. They always treated me that way, and uh, and that is something that is very personal. It's very you know uh, dark, and uh, yeah, it's. How do you think you were different? Why would they call you that? Uh, because I I develop slower than others, and uh, and now this is perspective. You want to say they can't really prove that. So like for for example, I had difficulty salivating. Controlling my salivation when uh, sleeping, so or breathing. Like I am like trying to go to sleep. I'm like I'm so focused on breathing that I can't go to sleep. So this is when mm. I was uh, like seventh, not seven, seven years old, eight years. Like this should not be something that someone in that age should be. So so I think I developed slower, but at the same time, it's you know it hits your ego and everything consistently all the time and. And it was a very, uh, yeah, it's, sorry. Like, yeah, it, it felt awful going back home every time for college. So, like, I would have stayed, and this is where I tell a lot of people, like, it's very important to leave the house. If you're in a very toxic environment, then then you then you sort of stay in, uh, in that sort of space. Mm-hmm. So you can't see yourself outside of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what what are you feeling right now? Well, now I'm like, you know, um, the audience doesn't know this. Like, I'm tearing up because, like, it's... I think they can tell. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of those things because, like, it frustrates me. It frustrates me. And this is why I want to do this community work because there's people out there that, when there's kids and teenagers and stuff that, you know, (laughs) they need need that love and stuff. So... So, so that's what really sort of motivates me, and uh, and uh, and you know, and this is where like what community comes in is that when things like this are happening to kids, like are there people out there that can you know give them support? Mm-hmm. 
After the interview, after we turned off the good mics, my housemate told this story, which I thought was relevant. Tearing, like literally went to my neck and stuff. Yeah, I've, I've never, I mean, we've talked about some intense stuff before, but I've never seen you get that affected. Well, what do you think was different this time? It's trying to put it in words. So the, the pain in words, it's, it's indescribable. Like... It's uh, one of the other traumatic events was, and this is where, with Islam and sort of thing, right, where I told my brother, I'm like, I not just experienced a beating, I heard of an, another child being beaten in the other room, him screaming, is almost like a prison, right? In prison, uh, there's, you know, guards and that sort of thing, there's walls, right, preventing mm-hmm. the other prisoner, and you hear another prisoner getting abused, right, getting beaten, right? You can't do anything about it. So it goes in your psyche that this is happening. You can't see it. All you hear is pain. So uh, that was a big deal. I was a teenager during that time. Mm. I was a tutor for um, for a little child, right? Like oh, yeah, third grade. Me this. Oh, and uh, it's so and he bad. didn't do his homework. Mm-hmm. And you told him to tell his mom and uh, <laughs> beat him right there. And uh, yeah, and yeah. like I saw him come back, whelps all over his body. And, uh, and I don't, like, I believe, and this is where my memory has become blurry because trauma, that's how trauma works, like, his sister was there in the room where I was. So, like, little sister type of thing. And I'm just like, is this real? Like, is this, you know, I'm responsible for that? But it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's like, unbelievable. And that little kid and stuff, like, he was experiencing depression in third grade and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So, like, he was asked, and, like, it's... Yeah, it is pretty awful, and and I think that's sort of frustrating is hearing like people like, oh just toughen up and like not understanding the the challenges. Do you want to do a eulogy, a little paragraph or poem to talk about um, your life, what you want people to know? Yeah, I guess so. Like, uh, yeah, it's like I don't know. It depends on not to say my mood impacts what I'll I'll write, but like I'll I'll say something that my sister said. I think what she said she helped a lot in uh, addressing this anxiety of death. Or so uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can, can I can just say it right now because like oh here here hold a, up I I got a treat. Uh, And how about this? Whenever I start playing, uh-huh. you stop talking. All right. And then I'll I'll drop off on like a mm. a, a drone or whatever. Yeah. And then you start. Got it. So it'll, it'll be a little bit of a collaboration. So I'm I'm adding punk. I'm your um, um, punctuation. Mm.
matter how you tr- how hard you try, and make sure that the people that care about you that you're there for them. It's one of those things where a lot of times people have this notion of a bucket list. They're trying to seek something in their own lives, seeking meaning, but they don't seek meaning in themselves and the beauty all around us. starting a family, having something that, that is totally ours. We never imagined people, friends, family, kids being, you know, living, our, you know, they, they are your family as well. We need to break this. takes a lot of humility to appreciate the people who are giving other people hope, impacting children, and really being a good positive force. And uh, it's a part of me of understanding that and appreciating what they're doing and not be judgmental. Like, we all have our way. We all have different brains. We have different ways of life. And as long as we're pursuing the good, that's what matters. Please do reach out. <laughs> that was good. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you for sharing um, parts of your life with us. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been your eulogy. Uh, my name is Matthew Shaneman. I did the music and edited. Did I say your name a moment ago? <laughs> yes. Oh. I'd have to go back and <laughs> no, maybe you should be able to say my name. Like, okay, then I will say your name. It doesn't matter at all, so I'll leave it anonymous. Thank you very much for being my guest, my friend. This has been your eulogy. My name is Matthew Schneeman. I did the music and edited this episode. If you have any questions or comments, please email me at your eulogy mail at gmail dot com. Thank you very much. I'll see you next week. I'm still looking for a tagline. If people don't send me recommendations, it's going to be something cheesy. So please, fire away or else I'm going to be saying something like, keep looking up even when you're down. Don't make me say that. It's going to be dumb. Thank you very much.